It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning, it's Thursday 10th of March on the Michael Reed Show this morning. Allegations of price gouging at the petrol pumps after the government cut excise on petrol and diesel. Jolly or legitimate business trip? Controversy surrounding Louth County Council officials travelling to New York for St. Patrick's Day. The Joint Therontes Committee on Health hears from the unions and representative bodies on the crisis facing frontline workers. And as the crisis facing refugees fleeing Ukraine worsens, we talk to one journalist who witnessed at first hand the terror facing women and children when they reached the Polish border. You're very welcome to the programme. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658. And we'd be very interested to hear your stories of the prices you pay to the petrol pumps this morning following the government's decision to reduce the amount of tax on a litre of petrol and diesel. Just before we we kick off this morning, I'm looking at the papers and if ever there was any doubt about the barbarity and the murderous intent of Vladimir Putin, have a look either on social media or any of the papers this morning. There's a couple of pictures that are are quite distressing to look at. One is of a woman, a heavily pregnant woman, being stretchered from a maternity hospital which was bombed by Russian forces last night and she's clearly in distress and injured. And whilst we're not quite there yet, another picture inside the end of this morning is of an open trench with bodies being thrown into it to be buried because it's just impossible for loved ones to bury individually those who have been killed in the massacre in Mariupol. And it's almost reminiscent, whilst I said we're not quite there yet, of what happened at the settler camps in Shatila and Borjal Barajne back in the 1980s in Lebanon. But it is quite sickening, it's distressing, and more than anything else, it's utterly depressing to see those pictures. Now, the government signed off on a cut in excise duty on petrol and diesel. The reduction will be 20 cent per litre on petrol and 15 cent per litre on diesel. 
A cut of two cents per litre on green diesel has also been agreed. The reduction will be in place until the 31st of August and will cost us somewhere in the region of €320 The Minister for Finance said the measures will reduce the cost of a 60-litre tank of petrol by €12 and a 60-litre tank of diesel by €9. However, Pascal Donoghue added that the government cannot protect citizens and businesses from the entire impact of inflation. Joining us this morning is Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Pierce Doherty. Deputy Doherty, thank you for taking our call this morning. You didn't quite get what you wanted. You were looking for 25 cent across the board and the entirety of excise duty to be removed from home heating oil. But nonetheless, the government did meet you more than halfway. It's, it's a victory nonetheless, is it not? Look, look we're, we're very conscious. We've pushed the government into acting. Uh, we've been raising the, the cost of living issues now with the government for many, many months. Uh, back in September, I was raising it with Pascal Donoghue about, you know, needing to engage with the European Commission about uh, allowing us to, to vary that on, on energy and, and, and products of that nature. That didn't happen. They haven't started that process at all. Uh, and it appears that they were allowing uh, fuel prices to run out of control. What we were looking for at the start of the week was to bring uh, petrol and diesel back to 175. At that time, what you needed to do was cut it by 25 cent. Um, since then, obviously, we've seen uh, the, the, the prices continue to spiral. Mm-hmm. So what needed to happen last night, Alan, was we needed the government to do everything that they could to bring the prices down as far as they could. And, and that meant pushing the boat out right to the edge of what was permissible. So they could have went and, and reduced petrol by 25 or 35 cents, sorry. They didn't do that. They actually voted against the Sinn Féin amendment to do that. And, and that's really important that your listeners know that because all of those Finnegale, Finnegale and Great TD and indeed the number of independents voted to keep uh, petrol at a higher price than it should be or could be this morning. And the same with diesel. On home heat and oil, I think what happened is disgraceful. Uh, A third of the homes across the state use home heat and oil as a a way to keep their homes warm. In many areas, border areas, it's two-thirds of um, homes and there is about €100 inclusive of that excise on 1,000 litres of home heat and oil. The the vote last night from us was to abolish home uh, excise duty on home heat and oil. They voted against it, and indeed, to make matters worse, they're going to increase home the tax on home heat and oil uh, on the first of May by another twenty euro, just over twenty euro per fill. And I think that's just ludicrous. Okay, I, Deputy, I, I, want I want to put the I want to put the counter argument to you on this, and it's something like this: at times such as these, fiscal prudence is required in order to insulate our economy against future shocks which are out of our control, which are coming down the track. We have to be prudent, do we not? Yeah, I I can understand that counter-argument that you're putting, but this is also a time of great emergency. Uh, And I think the lesson needs to be learned, and I think the lesson was learned during the pandemic. So at a time of the previous shock when we had the banking crisis, what the government did is they um, deepened the recession by imposing cuts when we had a pandemic uh, which was outside our control. What we did was the right thing where we supported individuals, businesses and spent billions of euro in doing that, not knowing where it was going to end, but needed to do it not only to support individuals, but to actually to support the economy and how the economy can uh, bounce back. The same has to apply now. There is a war going on as a result of the barbaric invasion of Russia 
Russia and Ukraine, uh, that those sanctions that are imposed that we think are, are really, really important, probably need to be strengthened, has consequences. So when we have those type of sanctions, we need to make sure we insulate people. So the question I would put back to anybody making that argument is, what do we do? Do we just sit back further and allow people to continue to pay 210, maybe 220 tomorrow, maybe a bit more the day after in terms of petrol and diesel? Okay, so so definitely then, just expanding on that particular argument, what happens when a large slice pan goes up by 20, 50, 60 cent, which is not beyond the realms of impossibility if you look at what we get from the likes of Ukraine in terms of our our wheat and what comes from Russian fertiliser. Does Sinn Féin say, well, it's now time to cut the price of food? Well, let me let me make this point. Um, so, first of all, let's let's just take the the price of diesel. So, the price of diesel from this time last year, which was at one thirty and is roughly at two twenty in many of the the, the, the four courts at the minute, that's gone up nearly a euro in the space of a year. The t- the increase that increased euro of what has risen, the government takes about twenty cent in tax net. What happened last night? The government were given back fifteen. So this is about being prudent. It's about not profiteering at a time when there is huge prices that are being imposed on individuals and businesses. And see the price of bread that you talked about. That price of bread is going to go up for a number of reasons. More, mostly so, mostly because of the breadbasket of of the world is is is, is Ukraine and wheat prices are increasing. But it will also go up as will other prices go up because of transport costs now. Because hauliers are basically looking at the books and saying we're going to go out of business unless we pass on these costs because we never estimated that uh, diesel was going to be at at 210, 220. So what we needed, and I I laid it out to Pascal Donoghue, we needed to deal with the issue of of fuel prices and home heat and oil last night. But there needed to be another package that we put forward, such as cost of living cash payments uh, going to those that are most vulnerable. €200 per person going to people earning less than €30,000 and €100 per person to people earning between thirty and and, and 60,000. Okay, Deputy, just just for a moment, if we could come back to the um, reduction in the cost of fuel at the pumps. It is what it is. The government has spoken. We may not like it, but should our focus now not be on what we are hearing about price gouging at the pumps? Well, first of all, I do not accept that notion. It is what it is. Well, it is what it is until the end of August. We've no choice. Yeah, well, look, actually, no, the public have a choice. Media and you know we have a choice to actually uh, to put pressure on the government to to do more because this can't continue. People are at a breaking point here, and I'm inundated with people who say, "I have a school run to do. Uh, I have a child with special needs. I, I'm in a rural area. That means my round trip is forty kilometres mm-hmm. per day." There are other people who have to travel large distances for hospital appointments up to Dublin. It is now costing them from Donegal. It is costing them huge amounts of money. This is like the, the inflation was put, putting huge pressure on people before this, and we need more from government and I am not for one going to settle and say well we just sit back and allow oil prices. Okay well go back to the the issue of price gouging that has to be looked at. There is profiteering going on and we're seeing anecdotal evidence of it here in the programme this morning. Absolutely and and that's where the CCPC needs to step in, needs to carry out an investigation where there's any evidence of price gouging that that has taken place particularly if there's price fixing uh, taking place within the market that has to happen. But let's be clear about this here. Uh, The day before yesterday the wholesale, not in Ireland, but the wholesale price of diesel rose by 22 cents. So what you're seeing, what a lot of people are seeing in the pumps is a reaction to the wholesale price of diesel. This isn't just happening in Ireland, it's happening in Britain. The estimation is that this is going to continue to rise and that's why we need intervention. So what, what, what we're seeing here 
is that people in, in the forecourt, some places, uh, are, are taking a, a, an opportunistic stance where they are immediately increasing uh, the price of diesel and petrol, despite that they having supplies that were bought at a cheaper le- level. But really, that's just about a matter of days because the wholesale price is increasing anyway. Okay. Is it, uh, and is therefore, it, it's going to be passed on within a number of days after. Okay, is it not reasonable to uh, adopt a cautious approach when you consider that we've already had inflationary pressures prior to what happened in the Ukraine. That has been accelerated. As things evolve, prices will increase. The government have a certain pot of cash that they can play with in order to bolster areas of society and the economy which will need help. Cautious approach. We need to adopt that, surely, Deputy. Let, let, let me put this to you again, and I can understand that argument, right? And that's an argument that government put forward. Let's take home heat and oil. Home heat and oil for a thousand litres, Phil, at the start of this year was already high. It was seven hundred over seven hundred euro. Today, your price in Dublin at eighteen hundred and fifty. That's over a thousand euro increase over a period of three months. The government takes thirteen and a half percent VAT on that. That means they're making about a hundred and hundred and ten euro um, in relation to that profit. That if they got rid of excise duty, they wouldn't be any worse off. Why, 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 the, the question I would ask is why is the government profiteering in terms of additional tax takes as a result of massive increases in prices that are putting huge pressures on families? So yes, we have to be cautious. I'm not suggesting that we get rid of every single piece of that, every single piece of excise duty. I'm not suggesting that. I know that there's other packages that we need to do, like cutting rents and freezing them for the next three years, like making childcare affordable, like those cash payments. We need to see increases in social welfare payments. We need a mini budget now. But what the government needs to do at this point in time is the need to push the boat out to the edges of what is possible okay. and permissible under EU what? rules. And that means further decreases in petrol, further decreases in diesel, and taking excess duty off home heat and oil, and not going ahead with their proposal to actually increase it on the 1st of May. When you consider what is unfolding in the Ukraine and the sheer barbarity that is being inflicted on the people, civilians, innocent civilians, women and children by Russian forces, does it not behove us to perhaps take a little bit of pain ourselves? There is absolutely no doubt, and I made this a comment last night in the doll, that it is impossible for the government to shield uh, all of our citizens from the economic consequences of, of this aggressive war by, by Russia. It is simply impossible because what we are seeing and what, we're, what we had suggested in terms of our proposals would not have brought, brought petrol and diesel down to really where people need to see it. But what we're seeing is it needs to be brought down further than where it is. The same with home heating oil. Getting rid of excess duty on home heating oil will help families, but it still means that they will be faced with hundreds of euro increases uh, that they didn't face at the start of this year. So we're very conscious of that. We also know that we have a huge responsibility for people who will be fleeing Ukraine and entering our shores and we need to make sure that they are protected, they are giving safe harbour here and that will cost the state money. But there is, as I said, in the middle of a war and an economic war also with these sanctions, we need to do everything we can to protect our citizens. This isn't permanent spending. This is spending that is 
that it, that is there for a duration okay. of time uh, to give that uh, comfort blanket. And otherwise, the damage will be serious to our economy if we do not, if we if we allow those prices to be uh, to, to, to continue to increase Deputy. without any support to families, then it will mean increased poverty, less spending. That means job losses uh, and an okay. economy potentially. Very good. Uh, Deputy, if I may, just before we leave it, ask you perhaps to comment on the implications and consequences of so many Ukrainian refugees coming to our shores. Now, your party has been it's been at the vanguard for many years when it comes to housing and the lack thereof in this country and the lack of action on the part of successive governments. Surely you must have concerns in relation to how we are going to deal with the sheer numbers coming into the country. I know that there will be many homes opening their doors and bringing, cit- bringing citizens of Ukraine in, but what happens when they need to be home housed on a more permanent footing. Yeah, and and you're hundred percent right. And obviously, um, everybody's concerned first and foremost for, for 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 what's happening in Ukraine, and we need to try and do everything we can to get that war stopped. And and we have a huge responsibility here. We've seen a couple of thousand Ukrainians already reach our shores, and the generosity of the Irish people is second to none. I, I see it myself in terms of people who are locating in Donegal and people who are making different uh, premises and 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 access to to, to different um, um, you know jobs and and, and other things like that 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 are really important at this point in time but w- that's the trickle and there is a, a huge influx that is to be expected and and we don't have any clear sight of what the government are proposing all of our lead spokespersons have requested uh, briefings from uh, the minister and the department so we're looking for briefings from the department of housing as you mentioned uh, what are we doing in terms of accommodation uh, we're looking for the de- briefing from the department of social welfare because obviously ukrainians will be entitled to uh, social welfare protection and also in terms of health because they'll be entitled to medical care they'll be entitled to health care and we have huge pressures in health okay. already. So we need a joined up system. This is an area that the political system should not be divided on. We, you know, there are times when everybody needs to put their shoulder to wheel. We've seen that during the pandemic. Uh, there may have been minor differences, but in relation to the public health advice, it was there on this issue in terms of how we deal with uh, the impact of the war in Ukraine. There needs to be a joined up and that's okay, we deputy. work with government constructively on that. We must leave with there. Sinn Féin spokesperson on finance, Deputy Pierce Doherty. Thank you for joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LM. FM. Welcome back to the programme 0861800658 if you want to text us. We are interested to hear your stories of what you are paying for a litre of fuel, diesel or petrol at the petrol pumps this morning. That's in light of anecdotal evidence there's a lot of price gouging going on. Now Louth County Council's Chief Executive says the New York visit by its Cahirluck and officials as part of St. Patrick's Day celebrations is very important. John Martin told councillors it's very hard to explain how major foreign direct investment comes about but claimed such trips are very often swinging FDI in favour of Ireland over other countries and strengthens local connections and networks. Independent councillor Maeve Yor has called for the cost of the trip to be paid for out of the Cahirlux allowance. And councillor Yor joins us online. We're also joined in studio by P.O. Smith, Cahirlux of Louth County Council, who's a Labour councillor. You're both very welcome to us this morning. P.O., you're going on a jolly for a few days by all accounts. Morning, Alan. Yeah, well, look, it's easy to to define a trip over to New York as a jolly or an unnecessary trip. I don't do unnecessary trips. I've been on the council now for 11 years and I've never went anywhere at all. Uh, But this time I got an invitation to go directly from the representation body that that looks after loud people in New New York. 
and it's a long-standing invitation that the Cahillo gets from Low County Council. And it is, in my opinion, the trip is of value because of the fact that we have a series of meetings over there. So we're going to be meeting with uh, representatives from Drada who, who uh, work in Drugs Rehabilitation uh, Centre for Disadvantaged People. We're going to be meeting with the chair of New York City Council to discuss undocumented Irish, including people from Drogheda and Loud and E3 visas. Mm. We're going to be meeting with Tourism Ireland to discuss why uh, the Boyne Valley area in particular is ignored. OK, well, that's all very laudable. But I mean, if we do a cost-benefit analysis on it, we want to know what you are bringing back mm. in terms of pounds, shillings, pence, jobs, you know, relationships between businesses and the East Coast of the United States. What are you going to bring back? What's going to be tangible? Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, the first thing you do is you're building relationships, number one. And it's very important to build relationships and to link in with people and to to put forward exactly what Loud has to offer. In terms of quantifying that, that can be difficult to do. So, for example, go back to 2014, 2015, when a delegation from Loud uh, County Council led by Mayor Kevin Callan at the time went to America to look for FDI for Drogheda. And it was only in 2018 that that actually happened when Yapstone came to Drogheda. And I was mayor at the time. And Tom Valletti, who was the chair... Well, well sorry for cutting across the peon. It's important that we point this out. It wasn't just his representation that got that in here. It was the hard work of Martin Shanahan and mm-hmm. IDA Ireland mm-hmm. who do a huge amount of heavy lifting across the globe. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, it's ministers and officials and councillors who swoop in at the end... Mm-hmm when there's a great announcement to be made. So to suggest that councillors alone or these trips will result in FDI coming in is a bit of a stretch. That's your interpretation of it. Well, it's not, and and I'll tell you why, because I've been out on those governmental trips before and I know how it works. Just let me finish. I didn't say that Mayor Callan at the time actually was responsible for bringing the Appstone here. You cut across me before I was able to finish. When uh, the CEO of uh, the Appstone was actually speaking when I was mayor at the time, he referenced the fact that there was a connection made. He didn't say that that was the reason why he was here, but he referenced the, the relationship. And you, you, uh, you yourself mentioned about building relationships. And you're right, it's very easy to ignore the fact that uh, FDI is brought in by Martin Shanahan and the IDA. That's the reason why we're meeting with the IDA in New York. I mean, you know, it's the same way you can say is tourism Ireland bring, does a lot to promote tourism in, in, the, in the area. But we have to ask the question, why is the Dublin-Belfast corridor particularly loud being ignored when it comes to actually tourism from the cruise ships that come into Dublin? People get off from America, they get off the cruise ships in Dublin, onto the bus, mm-hmm. head for Kilkenny, head for Cork, up the Wild Atlantic Way and fly out through Belfast. Let me bring you in there, Councillor. Um, your, it's perfectly reasonable listening to... Um, uh, to the argument being put forward here this morning, that there is a real net benefit by councillors going out and building those relationships, regardless of the cost, because we'll get it back in multiple terms as a result of those engagements, is it not? Good morning, Alan. Good morning to you. Um, in my opinion, and it's nice to hear what's going to happen on this trip, because myself and Paddy McQuillan, um, another independent councillor, raised at um, the county meetings and the municipal meetings what exactly is the agenda in relation to these trips. We weren't told it. We weren't told who was going on it. Um, I'm weary and the public's weary of, of this whole thing. Of, and as you pointed out, um, 
we all, um, Enterprise Ireland and IDA are experienced and have a proven track record in relation to taking um, investment Ireland. Um, to my knowledge, the trade deal that was set up um, in relation to Yapstone coming seven years ago and um, was set up by the Chamber of Commerce. Um, it came from California, not New York, on St. Patrick's Day. It was part of the Local Heroes um, Drogheda campaign by... Um, that was headed by independent senator Fergal Don uh, Fergal okay. Quinn. Um, we well, well, let's let's just deal with the here and now. I mean, you're still not happy about this. No, uh, I, I haven't been happy since I was elected seven years ago. And is that just because from a cost perspective or the whole notion of going over, is it a jolly, is it a business trip? What exactly is it? What's in your fundamental opinion, problem? In the public's opinion, it's a junket. The definition of a junket is an extravagant trip enjoyed by a government official at the public's expense. Spend the money, in my opinion, and the public's opinion, spend the money on a master plan for a tourism for Louth. Um, invite tourism chiefs here from America, from England, from France, from everywhere. Show them the jewel and the crown that we are in Louth. Um, Is that not a bit harsh, what you're saying in relation to this being a junket, a jolly? I've been no, on those. I've, I've been in on those from a professional perspective. I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy. They're not junkets. They're not jollies. They're hard work from what I've seen. Well, listen, I'm an elected rep of Loud County Council, Alan, and I asked the questions, and Paddy McQuillan has asked the questions. What's the agenda? Who's going? Who was asked to attend? The cost to the Loud taxpayer, the evidence, the tangible results um, of tourism and jobs. He was after naming off things that they're going to do there. We as elected reps weren't told that. They're meeting the chair of New York City. They're meeting the drugs initiative. They're meeting Tourism Ireland. They're building relationships with people. I, as a councillor, build relationships daily um, with people in relation to Loud and getting people to Loud and getting getting um, jobs to Loud and tourism to Loud. Um, uh, talking to people on the ground, people are fed up of this sense of entitlement and fed up of... Um, spending money unnecessarily. Um, other local authorities, Dublin County Council, Dunleary, Rathbone and Cork, don't do these um, trips. We're constantly told in Louth County Council when we ask for any initiatives. I took up about um, basketball hoops for public parks. You know, for um, yeah. we're constantly told um, no money for anything. There's no money. We have you, the, the constant answer, and P.O. knows this, is that we are constantly told we haven't increased local property tax in Louth in the last seven years and we can't afford to do anything. No matter if it's for a simple thing uh, like a basketball hoop. Okay, well, well, let let me put that very point then to P.O. in relation to the cost. What's it costing? I actually have no idea how much it's costing. Let's be honest with you. So you're going to engage in something that you don't know what the cost is ultimately going to be. It could be 10,000, 20,000 or 1,000. You don't know. That's madness. Well, not really. Uh, first of all, I don't know how much it's going to cost, the flights and the accommodation. That's number one. But that this is all public uh, knowledge. This will be made public because it's very well, it's easy. It's not public knowledge if no, we as elected reps can't uh, get answers. Just hang on a second. You, 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 are, you will get the, an- the answers because it's very easy to get the answers. Because well, Let me finish for a second. It's not a secret society. The bottom line is that this is all available through FII or through a simple request from the council to... Uh, document much, how much the, the actual trip cost. That's number one. I mean, this is a zero-sum game in my argument, in my view, this argument, because I could turn around to Maeve and say to Maeve, look, 
you're a member of Low County Council, you get paid €25,000 a year, you get paid 5000 in expenses, you get paid 3700 in gratuity. That's about I six don't take the 5000 Hang on a second, just wait, just wait a second. That's the equivalent of 160 grand a year. If you're being told there's no money to do work around the county, around Dundalk, why don't you gift that money back to Low County Council and request that work be actually be done? That's what I say to you. The second thing I say to you is, you were actually yeah, well, on, you, you were on, you were on, you were on, you were on Loudmead Education Training Board for five years, and you accepted travelling expenses from them, and now you're actually now you're actually standing up and saying, oh, you know, when people's travelling on behalf of the council that they shouldn't. Maybe, they should maybe, I will themselves. let you in. Just just let Peel finish. I will let you in to respond to what he's saying. Yeah. Now 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 you're actually dictating rules that you don't ab- uh, uh, abide by yourself. The other thing I'll say to you is that. I'm going to, I was invited to go to Spain in uh, in May by a local walking group in Drada who are developing the Boyan Camino. It's not an official Low County Council gig. It's not sanctioned by Low County Council. And I'm paying my own way on, on that one. And, you know, my idea of a holiday is not spending two days travelling, one day marching in the parade and having seven meetings crammed into three or four days then on top of that. That's not my idea of a holiday. And to be honest... I suppose uh, only for the fact that I'm the chair of Low County Council, the last place I'd be going uh, for St. Patrick's Day is New York. Okay, you can g- come in and respond to that. Because yeah, Peel gets personal every time we talk about this, he takes up the LMATB board. Um, I'm not dictating to anybody, I'm simply saying what the people on the ground are saying. Um, Peel is saying that me as an elected rep. Um, can ask the questions. I've asked the questions. Paddy McQuillan, independent councillor, has asked the questions. We don't still know who's going. Public still don't know who's going. Who is going, Peel? Well, we know who's you know. going. I have it in front of me here. The Cahirlock of Louth County Council, Peel Smith, who's in studio with here, he's going. Cahirlock of RD Municipal Council, Councillor Jim Tannant, is going. Head of Enterprise, Mr Thomas McAvoy. Director of Corporate Services, Joe McGuinness. That's who we know who are going. Well, isn't it a sad reflection, Alan, that the media can get um, information like that when the elected reps can't get information like that? And why is Jim Kennedy um, going? Um, that has never been the case that Cahirlock was. Maria Doyle as Cahirlock of Dundalk invited was. James Bourne as Cahirlock of Drogheda invited. Um, these are all the questions that um, we were asking. I want to see tangible results. Um, LMETB is thrown up at me all the time in relation to... I um, was on LMATB. PO did give me the position on LMATB because I wasn't in the political pact and PO in his goodness. And PO and myself work well together. We've worked on different issues in relation to um, stuff for loud. But um, we do work on different issues. But I worked hard on LMATB. And um, to say it's for me to give up my um, €25,000 wages, um, you know, for the benefit of the county, I do plenty of stuff. Okay. under the radar that nobody knows anything about. We've we got to leave it there. This isn't going to be an them and us, this or a me and PO or me against PO. I'm not dictating to anybody. I'm talking for the people of Dundalk and, and Loud and Ireland. And what I'm saying is we're weary of this sense of entitlement. Okay, we must we must leave it there. Maeve, I'm sorry for cutting across it, but we're, we're out of time. Uh, Independent Councillor on Loud County Council, Maeve Yore and P.O. Smith, thank you both for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
Welcome back to the programme. The government has come in for scathing criticism from unions and organisations representing medical staff that have joined the Rockless Committee hearing on the state of overcrowding at the country's emergency departments. The crisis is causing burnout among paramedics, nurses and doctors, health trade unions told the committee. Neve Griffin is health correspondent with the Irish Examiner and joins us this morning. Neve, thanks for taking our call. I was struck listening to the contributions by many of those at the Joint Oireachtas Committee yesterday that we haven't really made any progress. And I think it was probably summed up best by Vanessa Hetherington of the IMO when she referenced the fact that we had a Minister of Health in Micheál Martin 20 years ago who is now Taoiseach and nothing has really changed in those intervening two decades. Uh, yes, it was a very, very uh, disturbing session today. And I'd say rather than nothing has changed, things have gotten worse. There are people on trolleys now, even in the summertime here in July and August, which wouldn't have happened maybe 10 years ago. But um, yesterday they went through, I mean, a lot of problems. One doctor described it as a form of torture for people who are kept on a trolley maybe for 24 hours, 36 hours. Um, the Irish Nurses Mid- and Midwives Organisation said some of their patients co- come into the ED, they're treated on the trolley and they're discharged from the trolley without ever making it to a bed because there's such um, a bed shortage now. So it's very, very upsetting, I think, for anyone listening who might need a hospital in the next few weeks, which and any think, one of us might. Yeah, and I think what it was also telling was, you know, the impact this has on mortality rates Mm. and outcomes for patients as well, that that is significant. Yes, that's right. Uh, Dr Mick Malloy from the Irish Medical Organisation was discussing quite a large-scale study looking at thousands of people that was published in the British Medical Journal in January. And they said that if you're delayed for over six hours on a trolley from, you know, from getting your proper care, that this corresponds to one extra death per every um, 82 patients within 30 days of your admission. And he said quite bluntly that the impact of the waiting times on the trolley times is death. Um, which I, is maybe something we, we've normalised this, I think, a little bit. Alan, we're kind of used to overcrowding, but they're seeing the, the really tragic impact of it. And of course, too often people point to the fact, well, this is a re- as a result of COVID. It's not. COVID mm. was there, it came, it's still there. It actually just made things worse more than anything. Yes, that's right, because um, at the start of the pandemic, there were, you didn't notice it so much because so many elective operations were cancelled. But now we're trying to run a normal health service on COVID. So there's extra pressure on the hospitals. But these numbers, like today, there's 515 people on trolleys this morning at 8 o'clock, the INMO said. And you you would have seen that in 2019 as well. You know, it, it's really not, not can't be blamed on the pandemic, even though I think the, the politicians would like to do that. What was even more disturbing, and I think Phil Hay, who's Gen Sec of the INMO, pointed out that the framework on um, nurse staffing, which was to be implemented in 2021, in fact, I think it's only implemented across 12 hospitals. And that is, to put it in its simplest terms, the ratio of nurses to patients. And we're way off that, aren't we? Uh, very much off that. We're one of the one of the lowest in Europe with hospitals. I mean, at, you can go on the HSC um, recruitment site any day, and there's dozens and dozens of adverts looking for nurses. And as she said, that was an agreement that they went on strike for, and they stopped the strike because they were promised safe staffing ratios. And now, just 12 of the 29 hospitals, so not even half of the hospitals, are actually 
and putting that in place and she had figures and comments, I mean, sorry, from nurses in various hospitals saying they don't feel safe going into work every day, which is very sad. Bernard Durkin pointed out, as a member of the committee, pointed out that, you know, there is money there to tackle these issues. But he made a relevant point saying that it's not just Ireland who has a difficulty in recruiting nurses. It's common throughout the globe. Is that not reasonable? Uh, That's a fair point to make, but I think it's not very, you know, that's not much reassurance if if you're a 90-year-old man on a trolley for 30 hours, you know, as has happened during the winter. You just want us to be competitive. And there has been an increase, and the INMO said, in people applying for nursing training because people do see the changes. They do see the salaries are slightly being addressed. They do see these frameworks. But in order to retain those people and keep them in the profession, then all these agreements have to be really implemented. And I think that's where we're falling down. Now, time and again, many of the contributors were talking about Slaunchy Care and the need for the Oireachtas to take ownership of it. Is is Slaunchy Care, in its real sense and proper sense of implementation, the magic bullet to this? Well, it's definitely a large part of the answer because the committee also heard from Forsa and Sitdu who work with, mm-hmm. pe- with represent health workers in the community, and they were making the point that if community services w- were better, which is a key part of Slaunter Care, a lot of these people wouldn't get so sick that they need hospital care. You know that people would realise, oh, someone's got high blood pressure, uh, or someone is um, having mobility issues, and they would be helped. You know, before they fall down and break their leg. Um, so that's a key part of Slaunter Care. But again, like we heard from Force and Situ, that the, the the recruitment isn't happening for that. There's a lot of talk and a lot of small projects. Um, I think one of the speakers referred to it as tinkering around the edges. Around the edges, they did indeed. Getting right into it. With Slaunter Care, is there the perception that it's somewhat of a busted flush when you consider the high profile resignations that we have seen from that in the past? It's very worrying to see people, so many people at that level, resigning from a project midstream. You know, it's like the captain of the ship jumping overboard and the ship sails on. You don't really know where it's going to go. Um, but they, they, they tell us that they're fixing it. But when you sit there yesterday for three hours and listen to people who are really in the system, you would have to ask questions about it, I think. Where do you anticipate from your own experience that this could potentially end because as you said yourself one of the contributors and I think it was Phil Hay, were screaming for help on this mm. well we have to listen to them I mean we have to stop um, you know stop making speeches stop having these big sessions and actually get in there and listen but I mean there's very practical problems of those groups yesterday there are contract negotiations underway for hospital consultants and GPs and that Silni Hay said that their own framework is not being implemented so if we're not you need to create better working conditions which make people want to go in there and support people to do the job that they're trained to do. And that really seems to be a huge problem. Is it your expectation that we'll be sitting here having the same conversation in five years with no visible uh, visible change to the problem? Well, I hope not in five years, but I don't see it changing by next winter.
You know, I, I don't see this being gone by, say, October, November, or even January or February. But I do think, and a lot of people in the system say that if Slant Care was really implemented, if the regional areas are put into place, if new contracts are given to people, if community services are properly supported, it could work, but you have to start. Neve, we must leave it there. Neve Griffin, who is the health correspondent with the Irish Examiner, thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Let's just get back to those uh, prices at the petrol pumps, which some of our listeners are telling us are actually more expensive today than they were yesterday, despite the fact that we have seen a cut in excise by the government, which came into force following a vote last night. Tony from County Louth text in. Alan, you're absolutely right. It would be a matter that the reduction from government was as long... I beg your I'll start that again. Uh, Tony Furlath, Alan, as you rightly point out, it would not matter what the reduction from government was as long as the fuel companies have the right to raise prices at will. There's no justification for a price rise on fuel already in the Fort Court tanks. In this time of emergency, vital commodity prices should be under government control. Pat texts in to say a lot of fuel retailers deserve to be boycotted because they quite deliberately their prices well in advance of them knowing that the government would do something which they did last night. There are just some of your texts coming in this morning. Let's go to Kevin McPartland who's CEO uh, uh, for Fuel for Ireland, a representative body for companies who import, distribute and market liquid fuels and operate for courts. Kevin, good morning. Thank you for taking our call. Now, I wouldn't for a moment suggest that any of your members are engaged in the practice of price gouging it is out there, it's happening. What can you do or what can your members do or what can you tell them to do? Well, I can't tell them to do anything uh, because uh, we, don't, we don't manage the market. Uh, but, but look, there's a bit of context that's needed here. And the reality, look, the situation is right now, prices are extremely high, uh, painfully high, painful for consumers, for businesses and for us. Um, it's... it's it's a source of real anger and frustration, and it's a real difficult. It puts people in a real difficult situation, um, and they're looking for, for for someone to be held responsible, and they're looking for someone to blame. It's not fair to blame the fuel companies because we have to look at what the what the situation is right now. And if you give me twenty seconds, I'll give you the give you the give you the, the context. Well, I was going to ask you for the context, so go ahead. Yeah. So R- Russia provides about ten percent of the world's oil uh, needs, and right now entirely appropriately, nobody wants to do business with Russia, nobody wants to put money into the Russian economy, so they are all being iced, essentially. Um, So that means that 10% of the oil supply to the world is out of the picture right now, so that's a decrease in supply. In addition to that, Russia provides about 40% of all of Europe's uh, uh, gas, and that is very often used to generate electricity, and particularly in Central Europe. When they can't get the gas, they are now switching to use oil, which means that the demand for oil has increased dramatically. So any junior economic students will tell you that if you decrease supply and increase demand, it only does one thing to prices. That's, that's the fundamental context in which we're operating. Then we have the situation here in Ireland. The government yesterday announced that it was reducing excise duty. Um, and I have a few problems with what they announced. One, they said they were reducing excise duty by 20 cents per litre on petrol. They weren't. They were reducing excise duty by 16 uh, cents cent per litre on petrol, and then they were counting in the fact that the VAT would not be paid on the rest. 
similarly with with diesel, they said it would be 15 cents. It was actually 12.6. Well, that's one thing. The other thing they, they told consumers is that that will take effect from midnight tonight. What they didn't tell people is that the fuel which is in the tanks of petrol stations yeah. in Lowther Mead today uh, was paid for yeah. under the previous excise duty level. So to think that, uh, that you know the, the change would come into effect to the pumps at midnight last night was very obviously uh, misleading. Um, it, it, it's clear that you have to allow people to buy uh, the stock at, with, with the lower rate of excise duty paid in order they can pass that on. Because so that, that has to wash awesome. out of the system before we can actually get those price decreases which we which were agreed by government. And in that intervening period, we could see the price of a barrel further increase before that happens. Well, you have to look at what's been happening in recent days. On Tuesday, the wholesale price of diesel went up 22 cent in a day. You know, the government was talking about reducing excise on that diesel by 12.3%. Uh, so, so you can see that it's not going to be enough. Kevin, can, to, can I ask open. you though? Sorry for cutting across, but can I ask you this? Most importers will hedge. How far in advance can you hedge? I mean, presumably you're not being squeezed just yet because you've hedged quite a distance in advance. That's 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 another fallacy that surrounds kind of the oil supply chain. In truth, you 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 may enter into a contractual arrangement six months out. Okay. Uh, but only a month out do you do you finally agree the volume that you're going to take on a particular delivery, and you, the price that is paid f- by the importers is fixed at the time that it leaves the last port before it comes to Ireland. So very often for us at our supply chain, the last port is in Britain. So you have a ship leaving Britain today. If a ship is leaving Britain now it's very likely that it will land today, later on today. The price paid for the, for the cargo on that ship is set when it leaves the port in Britain today. It will arrive into a terminal later on today and it could be on a forecourt in Dundalk tomorrow morning. That's how quickly the prices change in fuel. Can I ask you, leaving aside the clarity you brought to the price at the petrol pump this morning and taking into consideration the different variables that you outlined do you still think it is wrong for the retailers to be gouging? I don't, I don't, I don't know why you think the retailers are gouging. People were selling diesel yesterday at a loss. There's no gouging. I mean, even at the, at the very best of times, Alan, if you pull into a petrol station and put 70 euros worth of diesel into your car, and I, and I walk in behind you and I buy a cappuccino for €2.50, there is a great deal more profit on the cappuccino than there is on, on the 70 euros worth of diesel. The margins on, on fuel are tiny. And when there is any disruption to the market like this, it has a huge impact. So, so to suggest that people are gouging when they're actually losing money is absurd. Can I ask you where you anticipate this will end? Because we spoke on this programme yesterday, and you're probably too young to remember it, but the queues outside garages during the fuel uh, emergency back in the 1970s, are we heading down that road if things continue the way they are? I think, I think we have to welcome what the government did yesterday, because what they did yesterday at last, after asking for a long time, was to recognise that they needed to intervene to take the pressure off the market and take the pressure off consumers. Now that they have done that, they now have to keep doing it because what happened yesterday was a drop in the ocean and they need to keep moving on. So there is talk about them looking at VAT. They say that they need European approvals to do that. Well, then we need to be talking. 
you know, we're not the only country in Europe that is having this problem. There is an urgency. I, you know, I speak to other national oil industry associations around Europe, and they are all um, struggling too. So we need that to happen quickly. We also need to look again at the excise duty. We also need to look, for example, at the fact that there was nothing done yesterday for the 700,000 homes in Ireland that use oil for their heating, the price of which has doubled in four months. It did almost nothing for farmers. Two cents a litre on agricultural diesel is woeful. You know, we have to really look at where this is pinching and, and what the impact of it will be. Because if you have very, very high prices uh, for transport fuels, as we have now, if they persist for very long, that will have a huge inflationary pressure because every single product that is on the on the uh, supermarket shelves uh, that your listeners will be going in and out of today, that has been brought there on a diesel-fueled truck. So anything that, do, that impacts on the price of diesel is going to have a huge impact on the rest of the economy, and we can't afford that to happen. Okay, but ex- we, we really but, need emergency measures. Yeah, but to expect the government just to act in isolation in relation to fuel would be utter ludicrous, uh, because you but consider it's not in isolation. no, no, it is because when you consider what is going on, it's not just about fuel; it's about what's going to feed into the economy as a result of the sanctions which are on uh, the Russian economy. We have food, we have the you know the impact on the agriculture sector, on business. They all have to be supported in some shape or form. And one way of supporting agriculture and business is to reduce their fuel costs. Because, that, you know, if you're speaking to a haulier, you will, say, you will find that the vast bulk of their operating cost is actually fuel. You know, I, I was talking to one, not huge haulier, but a reasonably sized haulier, and I said, what has the price impact, the price impact uh, uh, on you been? And he said, it's costing us an extra million a year. I mean, we have to recognise that this is... Uh, of crucial importance to the whole economy. And it isn't in isolation because we're already taking measures for the electricity market. We're looking at what measures we can take for other sectors, as we should be. I'm not saying we should be the only people who are given uh, consideration right now. We have to look at managing this emergency from from the point of view of the economy and society as a whole. Okay, these measures are in place till the end of August. When and where will the pinch point be? Do you anticipate that this will just escalate between now and August and the government may have to be manoeuvred into taking further action? Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the situation is extremely uncertain, and, and it's why we need to be very agile, um, and government needs to be to be responsive to what's going on on a, a geopolitical level, on a global level, uh, but also what's happening in our own economy. Um, what I will say is that the changes to supply chains. I spoke earlier about the fact that we've taken Russian supply out of out of the market. The changes to those supply chains will probably take four to six weeks to really. Uh, level out and that would that will give us a little bit more comfort then and and, and so we should see an improvement in it within that time 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 frame that's where we leave it kevin mcparland ceo of the fuel for ireland a representative body of companies who import fuel thank you for joining us this morning Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Almost three weeks after the invasion began, tens of thousands of Ukrainians are without food, water or power. The Russians are increasingly resorting to indiscriminate shelling to help the forces advance. At least two million people have fled Ukraine to neighbouring countries since the Russian invasion, creating Europe's fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. Of those, more than a million have fled to Poland. They've been largely embraced by the European 
neighbours. Most new arrivals are bused to reception centres away from the frontier. Some have family or friends in Poland or further afield in Europe where they can stay. Virgin Media News journalist Zara King has been reporting on the refugee crisis on the Polish border and joins us online this morning. Zara, thanks for taking our call and welcome back to Ireland. I want to ask you, on a personal level, how difficult was it for you reporting out there? Hey, good morning, Alan, and thank you so much for having me on the show. So, yes, I mean, obviously, I suppose, first and foremost, it's incredibly shocking to see something like this happening in 2022. Um, and look, obviously, as a journalist, it's our job to go and tell these stories and to give these people a voice at this point in their lives. But yes, on a human level, it is quite upsetting. I think, um, you know, we were prepared and we knew that there was going to be a huge volume of people. But I've said already since I came back, the one thing that I probably wasn't prepared for was the volume of children that we saw and just the innocence of the children and the fact that they are so lost and so displaced and the despair that their mothers are experiencing in trying to cope with all of that. Because um, even though you hear about it and, and you hear on the news and you see the pictures of them coming over the border and you know and you've been told that they've been separated from their partners on the Ukrainian side of the border, the reality of that as they cross over into Poland is really grim and incredibly sad. Um, you know, when you stand at the border at Medica, it's it's both chaotic and sombre in equal measure, if that makes sense, in a sense that you can hear the noise of generators humming in a temporary soup kitchen. You can hear um, the, the engines sort of purring. These are cars that are trying to get inbound into Ukraine. So there's a lot of loud noises around you. There's media, there's journalists, there's people there offering food and sandwiches to people as they come over. So there's a lot of loud noises happening around you. But then under all of that, and I don't think that a lot of the cameras pick this up, is this sort of silent sobbing that comes from these women as they come over the border because... In one way, they're crying because they're relieved that they have reached safety. But on the other hand, they recognise that really this is just the beginning of what is going to be a very difficult period mm. of their lives going forward. One thing that struck me looking at the pictures was the miles and miles and miles of queues of vehicles of people walking towards the border. What happens when they arrive there in terms of being processed, in terms of getting a meal and then being brought somewhere? How long does that take? And despite the chaos, is there some semblance of of efficiency there, Zara? Yeah, there definitely is. And I have to say, Alan, like credit to the Polish people. They have been phenomenal in their kindness and generosity to their neighbours. The minute that the people arrive over the border, there's um, signs that will say Poland will help you. Uh, they give them uh, maps that say this is where you are with the coordinates so that if they need to get picked up by a friend or a family member that they can text them essentially an air code to let them know where they are. Um, and they're brought in. So it depends on whether or not you come over by foot or by bus. So there's a lot of, it's a real mix of what you're seeing coming through. Um, if you're coming by foot over the border at Medica, you can imagine a border post it basically looks like a toll, a toll plaza, for the want of a better word. Uh, they walk over, there's nothing else out there in that area other than one supermarket just beside uh, the border crossing. And besides the supermarket is a yard where they would normally have deliveries. So that's been turned into sort of a place where people can go to get a hot meal, they can get blankets, coats, all the kind of donations that people are sending out uh, to the Poland, Ukrainian-Poland border, they're all out there. So... Some people will come and they will wait around at the supermarket because they have friends and family who are coming to collect them. Other people will get on buses and they'll be bussed into these temporary refugee camps that are situated kind of 15, 20 minutes in from the border post. When you arrive at the temporary refugee camp, again, you're brought in, you're given a bed, there's camp beds inside. The two temporary refugee camps that we visited, by the way, were basically shopping centres which I'm going to be honest, is still better than tense. At this, mm-hmm. this time of year, it's incredibly cold in Poland. It's freezing. 
So, you know, obviously these are not ideal circumstances, but the fact that they're actually concrete buildings and they have heating is definitely something, but it is still incredibly difficult. So they're brought in, they have the beds, and people who, a lot of people in the first um, week will have been people who had friends and family and who had connections outside Ukraine. So a lot of them were getting collected. They were just waiting until somebody came to collect them. The face of this humanitarian crisis is changing rapidly because people who waited until the second week, generally speaking, were people who didn't have a destination in mind, who didn't have anywhere to go. They're people who were forced to flee the conflict because either it was becoming unbearable in their city. One woman, for example, told me that her and her mother were in um, a bunker, which was basically the underground car park of their apartment complex. And she said her mother was in her 80s and she said it was so packed that my eight-year-old mother could not lie down in the bunker. So we couldn't lie down for six days. I had to make a decision. We wanted to sit it out. We hoped that things would finish after a couple of days. We thought we would be okay. And in the end, the decision was purely based on the fact that they couldn't physically lie down in the bunker because it was so packed. You, you, you spoke about, obviously, women and children being making up the majority of people who are coming to the border crossing there. Of course, they're the elderly people as well. When they arrive, yeah. is there sufficient and adequate medical facilities for them should they require it? Yes, there definitely is. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot of medical support. Every single station that we went to had um, a sort of an on-hand unit and a medical unit, so people were able to go in and ask for a treatment. I mean, in general, what I would say is that physically, from the most part, people are physically well. It is the psychological impact that we have to be concerned about going forward. The UN speaking about the fact that we don't know at this point the psychological impact this is going to have on people. They have fled a war zone. They have heard bombs. For example, one lady told us, Alan, she was um, a lecturer, an English lecturer from the university in Kiev. And actually, she's been planning to open her own English language school next month. She had all her promotional material ready to go. She had been dreaming about this for so long. Obviously, all of that is gone now. But she was coming with her sister and her young nephew, who's only eight. And she spoke about the fact that the children in the centres, if they hear any sort of loud noise or something drops on the floor, that they're jolting, that they're shuddering. Because we have to remember that these children have come from a place where loud noises meant bombing and shelling. So while physically a lot of people are quite well coming over the border, it is the emotional and psychological impact that will last for a very long time. You get the sense that Poland is able to deal with the numbers that are coming at the moment. Do you get the sense, though, if this continues in the manner in which uh, we have witnessed in the past, that things will get a little bit tricky in terms of being able to, to support those who are arriving on the border? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I think things are running, as I said, as smoothly as possible. I mean, don't get me wrong, there has been challenges. I mean, for example, uh, Joni and I, my camerawoman, Joni McKenna, you probably worked with I know Joan well, yeah. Yeah, you'll know Joan yeah. well, Joan Investment. Um, Joni and I, you know, were a little bit concerned about it. It's quite chaotic at these centres. And I mean, the volumes of people coming through, for example, um, when we were about to do the News of Eight on Friday night, we were standing waiting for the headline sequence to run and we heard a loud scream. A child had run out in front of a bus. Now, the bus missed the child by millimetres. And that would be the concern that it is so busy and so chaotic that, you know, it is it is becoming slightly overwhelming. However, I do think the Polish authorities at the moment are doing really well. Just to give you kind of numbers, well, and so that we understand the context mm-hmm. of how quickly this is growing. So last week on Thursday, Friday, when we were there, the uh, Polish Border Authority releases the daily numbers on their Twitter account of how many people come through. So on the day, I think there was around 60,000 each of those days that came over the border from Ukraine. Yesterday, 117,000 came over. So those numbers have doubled in the couple of days. On Sunday, um, Filippo Grande said that 1.5 million people had fled Ukraine. By Tuesday, that number had gone up to 2 million. 
So you're seeing how rapidly this is escalating. And like I say, again, the profile of the people who are coming now are people who don't have a destination in mind. One little girl that we met, she was 14. Um, she was with her mum on her own. They'd left her dad, obviously, on the Ukrainian side of the border. And Anna said to me, she'd never been outside of Ukraine before. She's only 14. She'd never been on holidays to another country. She'd never been anywhere outside Ukraine. And I asked her, where are you going to go? And she said, well, we don't know. She said, my mum keeps saying that we're doomed. But I keep telling my mum we're going to be okay. So it's really difficult for these mothers and these children. Now, Ireland, as well as other European countries, are sending aid out there, whether it be financial, medical or food. Are they doing the right thing by sending truckloads of food out there? Um, medical aid, obviously, but should, in your experience, is it better to send the money out? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I suppose I can only speak from my own experience. Yeah. I don't want to give people, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on people's big efforts. And I, and I think it's phenomenal the things that people are doing. And I've interviewed and met people who are bringing van loads of stuff over. I suppose that's just from based on what myself and Joan have seen. We saw vans being turned away at Medica because they were just so overwhelmed with donations. And that's not to say that that, um, that stuff can't be redirected into other areas. In fact, what we're actually seeing is that some of the vans, was one van we met, for example, that came from Birmingham. And they were told to go to a different location to drop off their donations, and those donations are going to be brought inside Ukraine. So there seems to be a big need for stuff um, inside Ukraine at the moment in terms of the border regions and the centres there. They seem to be quite well stocked because even on Saturday we were down at this um, temporary refugee camp that used to be a Tesco store, and we were speaking with um, the mayor of the region, or they call him the president in the region. And like you could see at the back of the, the store, they were just taking in boxes and boxes and boxes of deliveries. And there was just piles and piles of coats that really, like, nobody was taking. So I don't know if there's a lot of stuff going to waste in terms of, you know, for example, at another, at the Medica border crossing, you have piles and piles of blankets that have been left out, Alan. And it was starting to snow overnight. So you'd have to imagine that a lot of those were not going to be usable by the morning. So in terms of helping, really at this point, based on what I've seen, I would say financial donations makes the most sense at this point. Just finally, Zara, can I ask you, having spoken to the many refugees who arrived on the Polish border there, did you get the sense that they were utterly shocked, overwhelmed at the speed in which things evolved within their country with Russian forces coming in and them having to essentially pack a bag and run? Yes, absolutely, 100%. They were completely shocked. A lot of people said as they came through that perhaps they expected conflict in the Donbass region that they didn't in any way think that it would escalate and move across the country the way it has. But what I would say, Alan, and this is the main thing that I have taken from every Ukrainian person I've met, is from the moment they step over the border, the first thing they say is, I just want to go home. They all want to go home. They can't wait to go home. And they're grateful to the world for the opportunity and the support to be uh, taken care of over the next little while or however long this is going to be, because, of course, none of us know when this conflict is going to end. But the overriding takeaway from every Ukrainian person I met is that they just want to go home. And a lot of them worry about whether or not their home will be there when they return. Zara King, Virgin Media News journalist. Can I just say, well done on your reports. They were moving, they were very insightful and they made you think about what really people are going through there. And Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back. Let's just go through some of your texts in relation to the price at the petrol pumps this morning. Texter, what on earth is going on? One garage I've seen in County Meath with diesel at 2.30 per litre this morning after the so-called government reduction of 15 cents a litre. A listener from Nobborough County Meath, I'm just after pricing heating oil. It's €840 Euros for 500 litres 
and 1550 for a thousand litres. I'm only on social welfare and I'm just out of heating oil. Jerry phoned in to say the government brought the fuel down by 20 cent from midnight, yet one petrol station had their fuel at 201 per litre yesterday at lunchtime and this morning it's at 207 cent a litre. How can this be right? And Eamon via Facebook says when it was made known the excise cut was coming, local garages put their prices up straight away so you saved a little, literally nothing but they are making a lot more on profit. Just some of your comments there. Maybe from Drahada, I'm paying a fortune to commute to and from work in Dublin every day and was looking forward to some kind of reduction, but the petrol stations put their prices up the night before. Some of the comments, if you want to comment on that, or if you've seen prices which are far in excess of what they were yesterday, you can text us or WhatsApp us on 86 658 I want to stay with those and uh, go to Labour Party spokesman on finance, Jed Nash. Jed, uh, you uh, are calling for a maximum price orders to be put in place immediately in order to address the spiralling costs of petrol and diesel. Reality would suggest that's not probably going to happen, is it? Yeah, but the law would suggest that it is um, possible. Um, the Minister of Public Expenditure Reform yesterday in the government press conference when they announced the excise duty cuts, the plan cuts that were introduced um, last night, uh, said that that simply cannot happen. Uh, he's entirely wrong. Um, the 2007 Consumer Protection Act, uh, Section 61 of that Act, um, provides for um, a toolbox, in essence, for government to um, introduce what's known as maximum price orders to control the price of certain goods uh, in, I quote, abnormal conditions. And I think everybody would accept that we are in abnormal uh, conditions at the moment. So I think the threshold has been met, quite frankly, uh, given the circumstances we're experiencing at the moment as a consequence of the illegal Russian invasion and occupation of Ukraine. The circumstances, I think, have been met. OK, but, but Jed, you know, if you look at what this is going to cost the Exchequer, uh, between now and the end of August is somewhere north of 320 or 30 million euro. We have to get that money from somewhere. We have to have money in the coffers to pay something else, support businesses. Yeah. We'll have IBEC, we'll have everybody coming looking for, for some form of financial intervention. Well, I, I think um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because when you look at the 320 million euro, Alan, that this will cost uh, the Exchequer in terms of lost excise duty revenue, uh, lost income. Uh, I want to put this in context for you so listeners understand as well. Um, last year, €2 billion Euro was generated for the Exchequer in excise duty, uh, that included excise duty on uh, petrol and diesel. So the cost of uh, this cut that was introduced last night by government uh, comes to about €320 million Euro over six months. Now, the cost to households, the cost to small businesses, cost to workers uh, in terms of this ongoing sort of unsustainable um, continuous escalation uh, of petrol and diesel uh, prices will be incalculable uh, and there are trade-offs here. Um, for this kind of intervention and for more significant, the kind of more significant interventions that we've been arguing for, yes, they may come uh, at, at a cost in terms of an upfront cost, but the social and economic benefits, I think, will outweigh it. This is just simply um, unsustainable. And what we saw over the last 24 hours in particular, deeply cynical exercises by some uh, forecourt operators uh, increasing the um, price in anticipation of the excise uh, duty cut. Um, you know, as I said in the doll last night, there's a special place in hell for those who deliberately 
set out uh, to increase petrol and fuel prices uh, as a consequence uh, of, of of a war. Yeah, now, Jay, Jay, that was that was pretty harsh language to use. In fairness, I mean, if you listen to uh, Kevin McParland there, he was talking about the fact that they're not gouging. They're they have paid for what's in their tanks at a specific price. And they have to let that run through the system before they we, can we don't, price it at, at the new price. We don't know that, and we're we're we're, we're expected uh, to take the arguments of the industry uh, and, at face value without any evidence. And I do want to qualify what I said uh, last night because it gives me some common expression in social media. This uh, I said it was a special place in hell for operators deliberately set it to profit from the consequences of a war. If it is the case that uh, yesterday you bought. Um, petrol and diesel at a wholesale cost that was much more significant than the day before, then that is understandable um, in, in, in terms of the, the, the laws of business and economics uh, that, that may very well be passed on. I don't for one minute accept that large operators uh, in the sector, um, you know, what the household names that we're all familiar with, would not buy in bulk in advance. If they didn't, uh, that would be very, very bad business practice and very, very poor uh, economics. So the wholesale price uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, it was much less. Uh, I think this is a cynical exercise. I, I would suspect that um, we don't have the evidence, and I've asked yesterday for the uh, Competition and Consumer Protection Authority to take an interest in this, You know, where there may be exclusive price fixing or any sense that uh, there's a, a form of price gouging going on, then the regulator must investigate this. And as I said in the doll last night, throw the book at those uh, okay. operators who may be responsible for this because this then I think um, uh, gives the entire industry a bad name at a very very difficult time okay but, but uh, Jed you, you, you uh, do accept the situation that the industry is in right there's yeah. no control that this government can have over international wholesale prices but the kind of cynical stuff we've seen over the last couple of days uh, does nobody any credit okay well let's try and advance the conversation then that it's quite conceivable that in a well not in a week maybe in a month's time we won't be talking about the price of a litre of diesel or petrol at the forecourt, we could be talking about rationing, queues outside forecourts. That's realistic, isn't it? Um, the potential for that is very, very real. Um, we haven't been here uh, since uh, the 1970s. Um, and uh, all I can do to reflect on that is literally read, read the history books uh, and people will remember during that oil crisis. I remember it. It was grim. It was very grim. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've seen that and we've spoken to my parents, I've spoken to others uh, about that experience. It was very, very uh, grim indeed. And that's why we need to move away from fossil fuel dependency. Uh, for example, I mean, the impact that oil crisis had in Denmark, um, their government at that point in time started moving away from fossil fuel dependency and into renewables. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bigger argument and a bigger conversation that we need to have in terms of reducing our dependency on carbon and decarbonising our economy. Uh, more generally. The point that I'm making repeatedly, and I've been making this point since last September, when we identified that we were going to have issues around rising inflation and cost of living as uh, we, we, we emerge from the deepest, darkest days of the pandemic into um, a more normal economic uh, scenario. We anticipated that we were going to have problems around inflation, uh, that people's living standards were going uh, to be reduced. Uh, the fact is that the um, proposals issued by government just a few short weeks ago are entirely inadequate. I've been arguing consistently for a form of mini-budget so we could actually look at this in a more holistic way, how we can better support uh, the living standards and incomes of low- and middle-income families. Um, We did that uh, during COVID. Uh, Great credit to this government and the caretaker government previously and all members of 
uh, the doll who work with government uh, to try to develop solutions. Yeah, but, but, but not wanting to speak on behalf of, of the government, Chad. Uh, I'm I mean, aware this is going to go. Yeah, you. Um, we need to see more from government terms. There's a toolbox that's available from them. Like, I mean, for example, Anna, I've been on this programme before talking about it. They have not sought a derogation from the uh, European VAT Treaty to reduce the VAT on energy uh, prices uh, what you pay at the pump uh, and we've been arguing this since last yeah, but, but Jed, sorry for cutting across Jed, we, we have to recognise that you know, to a certain extent we're in crisis management m- mode here because this is evolving at a very rapid rate, we still have to deal with the refugees coming in here, we still have to deal with supports for the people, for business for agriculture, there's such a gamut of things that we have to do it will take time and it will take patience on the, on the part of the opposition as well surely yeah, and I, I argued last night, and I also make my arguments you know, from, from an evidential basis. The maximum price order notion, uh, I think, requires more interrogation. Um, it has never been used. It is legally possible. Um, I think these are the kinds of scenarios that the government of 2007 envisaged when they inserted uh, that particular measure in the Section 61 of the Consumer Protection Act to manage um, costs for householders and businesses Exceptional times, these exceptional times called for exceptional measures. Nobody would have anticipated, uh, even a short few months ago, to be in this situation. The situation is evolving, though, isn't it? And if it is a case that uh, orders, uh, if they were to be introduced over the next Jed, I'm sorry. Jed, Jed, your line, your line, Jed, is breaking down there. I'm sorry. We're going, we're going to have to kill it there because the line is it's it's not broadcastable. But our apologies for cutting you short there. It was uh, uh, Jed Nash, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back to the program. If you want to text us or WhatsApp us, we're on 086 658 or you can call us on 041 2000. The Irish anti-war movement continues to condemn Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and are calling on the Russian Federation to withdraw its military immediately. The IAWM condemn, in particular, the indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas by the Russian military in recent days, which amount to war crimes. Jim Roach is PRO and joins us online this morning. Jim, thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, can I put it to you, and I think I would probably speak for everybody we don't want war. War is the last thing we want. But sometimes, sometimes, drastic measures are required in order to bring tyrants such as Putin to heel. Is that not reasonable to say? Alan, thanks for um, having me on. Can I just check that you can hear me okay? Loud and clear. Clear oh, as a whistle. I, yeah, no, 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 thanks again uh, for having us. Um, look, that's... Uh, a provocative question, and it is one uh, that lots of people who would normally be very clearly anti-war are asking uh, themselves and are feeling that, oh, we have to help the Ukrainians in this awful hour of need. But um, it's not that simple. And any any uh, escalation of the war is only going to make it much, much worse for the Ukrainians. Uh, and that's what we're, the message we're trying to get across that there mustn't be an escalation and that Western leaders in particular should be helping the uh, Ukrainian government in trying to broker peace with the Russians. And I, I mean, the most hopeful thing happening today, I think, is is the meeting between the two foreign ministers, Lavrov and Kuleba, 
in thus brokered by Turkey. Uh, it's, so, it strikes me as just window dressing, though, does it not? Well, I, I think I think the Ukrainian uh, government is making an effort. Uh, it's not been helped by the non-efforts of of Western governments. They they have scant regard for their efforts, and we've said that in our uh, press release. Uh, there is always a danger, of course, that it could be window dressing and that it could be choice by the other side and it could be choice by both sides, you know. But what's the option here? Well, maybe the option is, and we've seen it historically, was that war ultimately will push either side to the negotiating table, albeit that will come at a very high price, but at the end of it, we'll have some sort of resolution. But can we contemplate the kind of war we're talking about here? Uh, if if there's escalation, let's say like this, the other thing we referred to in our press release yesterday was this offer by the Polish government to hand over the MiG fighter jets to the Americans, but with this clear intention then to be handed over mm-hmm. to the uh, to the Ukrainian military. And this esca- you know, this potentially could be taken by Putin, who let's make it very clear is being totally barbaric here, and we've we've been totally condemnatory of him. Um, but he could regard this as an escalation and uh, he, he, he'll instruct his uh, Air Force to to uh, take these out of the sky. So then you have a problem of NATO, NATO planes being taken out of the sky. So it's very difficult. I, I acknowledge that and I was at the protest, um, the, the Ukrainian people's protest, if you like, uh, in O'Connell Street and the big chance there and there's several thousand people there on, on Saturday. And the big chant was, no-fly zone, no-fly zone. And give us a no-fly zone, protect our skies, and we'll do the rest. But Jim. The, 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 you see, that, if I can just continue. Yeah, go on. That's the problem. That is, we'll escalate this war. It, 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 I mean, who? The, the obvious question, well, who will protect the skies? Who will create the no-fly zone? And it, they're calling on NATO to do it. That means NATO suddenly is involved in a war with Russia. That is World War Three. That is, you know, we can't just contemplate what that means. And that doesn't mean we, we, we do not care about the suffering of the Ukrainian people at the moment, which is, you know, awful. I mean, it's absolutely heart-wrenching. And do you, do you, Jim, find it difficult, and I totally respect your position on this and your organisation's position, but you must find it difficult to not say in your own head, my God, maybe we should do something, particularly when you see pictures in the front of the papers of that pregnant woman being know, wheeled out of a hospital and bodies being thrown into a pit. It's I very know, difficult to sit uh, back and it, say, it, let there be no war. Yeah, and I touched on this with Michael last week, and... Uh, of course, and that's what we're finding. People are struggling with it. They're really struggling with this. But then when I remind them of the horror of Yemen at the moment for the last seven years, a war you know, conducted by Saudi Arabia with the total help of NATO countries, particularly the US and Britain, where you know, 377,000 people have been killed, tens of thousands of women and children killed, uh, millions displaced, millions on the verge of starvation. So when when I you know when I raise that with them and, and and you know this is this is the problem with the current coverage and I'm not blaming LMFM by any means but the the, the predominant coverage and of course it's understandable Ukraine is close to us we have a lot of connections there uh, etc but 
we're not, there's terrible double standards going on in, in the broad and wide broad stream media, if you like, at the moment of the coverage of Ukraine while not covering other wars, you know. So uh, we, we would never, if, if you take the case of Palestine, when Israel is bombarding and take the case like last, last May, uh, total support from Irish people, you know, total solidarity, including in the doll that, that, that motion that was passed. Um, no Palestinian solidarity activist would ever dream of calling to send arms to the Palestinians. Right, and, and they're equally justified in being able to defend themselves and protect themselves. If you think of the horrific bombardment of Gaza, okay, Jim, Gaza, Jim, right? can we just bring no, it no, back no, no, and I, just no, just for a moment? Back to Ukraine. Let's go back to Ukraine then. Yeah, well, the, well, the I want to go back to Ukraine and ask you about. I know your view on the no-fly zone, but when you okay. see what is happening in Mariupol and the bombardment which is happening there, one would say, you know, something. Despite the possible consequences of putting NATO, NATO aircraft in the sky, it's worth it. You're saving lives by doing that. There is a risk, but you're saving okay. lives. The way I, the way I think how that would play out, Alan, there might be an initial. Um, saving of lives uh, for a day or two and then Russia would unleash uh, its full military against NATO and we would be into World War III and there would be a hundred Mariupols. That's that's the problem. And uh, I'm not saying that the people of Mariupol have to, has, has to suffer because we want to avoid World War III in total, but we, we need like, what is, what, why aren't Western governments calling for peace talks? Why aren't they calling for a ceasefire? Western governments have been, in the main, have lines of co- communication open with the Kremlin. I mean, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron has spoken to the Russian president on a number of occasions. We've seen talks being facilitated on the fringes of this particular war, which haven't amounted to anything. And as you point out today, we have the talks between the foreign ministers yep. happening in Turkey. So there are lines, there's the shuttle diplomacy going on all the time. But when you're dealing with somebody like Putin, who is clearly unhinged, it's very difficult. I, I think we need, again, I said this to Michael, I think we need to be careful about the, the uh, mental condition of Putin. I mean, it may be the case, but also he has advisors around him. Uh, Who are terrified, terrified not to tell him what's really happening. No, no, but it, 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 I, I, I think I, um, the, the death of, of, of um, Russian soldiers will start to have an impact. There's no question of that. And also the, the brave Russian people who are willing to go out and protest, that could start to have an impact. But escalating the war, I don't believe will, because that will, that will just give sucker to his argument in Russia, gather his war hawks around him, and it'll unleash uh, much more war. So that, that's the that's the difficulty. I agree that Germany and France in the, in up to the start of the war and and Macron since has has tried to talk, but it's not it's not a um, uh, a, a continuous thing we are getting from the, the, the Western leaders. And I, I look in particular to what uh, Secretary of State Biden said. Five days ago, he, he said in an interview that he, he thought Ukraine had the possibility of winning this war. And Joe Biden, at the end of his speech, and I said this last week, Joe Biden said at the end of his speech, unscripted, he said, go get him. Uh, uh, you know, so 
both of those are warmongering and it needs to stop and the Irish government should be telling the American the American government this needs to stop okay Jim finally finally and very briefly we would hope to see the younger people particularly in Russia taken to the streets they have they've been arrested in their thousands but are you somewhat disappointed that there hasn't been a groundswell of support amongst the Russian people who are outraged at what is happening here or will it happen well, it's hard to be honest, Alan. It is hard to judge it now with the with the, the media lockdown, if, if you like. But I, of course, I'd be a bit disappointed. And what we need to do here in Ireland, though, is convince young people in Ireland uh, and abroad. I mean, we're making links with the Stop the War Coalition in Britain and Code Pink in America. We're having a meeting on Monday to discuss how we can stop the war, a public meeting in Wynn's Hotel and online. We're, we're starting to do stalls. We, we had a very interesting stall last Sunday where, you know, you know, people weren't attacking us for our banner, which which said stop Putin's war, but no, no to militarization and NATO is not the answer. And we, we weren't being attacked, okay. you know. So I think there is an audience there for an, an anti-war message. The thing is, we're not hearing it from the leaders, including the leaders in Ireland. Okay, Jim, we must leave it there. Jim Roach, PRO of the Irish Anti-War Movement. Thank you for joining us. A couple of texts before we leave you this morning. Kenneth Bell, Delique Applegreen. The cost of diesel is one ninety nine and petrol is one eighty four this morning. Catherine Boyle and Tesco Dundalk has diesel for only one hundred and seventy four point eight and one hundred and sixty nine point eight for petrol this morning. John says at his local garage the price displayed is the same as it was yesterday, but maybe they didn't get the chance to change the price on the screen just yet. That is where we leave it. We're back you uh, back with you same time tomorrow. Until then, from everyone here. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.